This is Joe Sib of his comedy record Nowhere Near the Top on Tell Craig Your Story podcast. This would happen to me is the other day, Saturday, I get done surfing. I'm like, all right, everyone's waiting for me in the front room. Dad, come on, let's go. We got to go, go. And I'm like, okay, shower. Boom, boom, boom. I go down to reach my underwear. I go down, I see him. Next thing I know, I'm going for the sideways and I'm going to the left, I'm going to the right, and I start going backwards. I'm fully naked. It's not pretty. I'm, full, I'm going backwards. All of a sudden, I hit, I fall onto my ass, onto my back, hit my head. Boom. I'm laying there. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going out. This is how I'm going out right now. Is this happening right now? Is, I'm looking down, I can just see my underwear tied around my ankles, and then my wife just busts in. What's going on? And I'm laying there, laying, and all I could come up with was, I'm meditating. Mama's day. Hi guys, Craig here. Welcome to another edition of the podcast, Tell Craig Your Story. Today we'll be speaking to Joe Sib. Now, Joe was raised in San Jose, USA. He is a musician, singer-songwriter. He is a comedian, producer, actor. Now, Joe was the front man of the punk band Wax and 22 Jacks. He also is the co-owner of of Side One Dummy Records, which has signed Flogging Molly and Gaslight Anthem. He brought out a, a comedy record, Nowhere Near the Top, which we heard uh, some of that at the start of the podcast. He has done a stand-up show called California Calling. He has been an actor in the cult classic Mallrats. He's supported some of the biggest bands in punk rock, uh, he supported Danzig, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, and Bush. He's also been a part of the Vans Warp Tour with his bands. He amazingly got to meet uh, one of the biggest bands, the Ramones, and got to go up on stage and play with them. More recently, he joined up with Jim Brewer, and he started doing some shows with Jim. Then he got the opportunity to support Metallica on their recent U.S. tour. 
we get to hear so many great stories about on the road with Metallica. But before we go, please go to our website. We're at Podbean. Tell Craig your story at podbean.com. We are on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, at Tell Craig Your Story. Make sure you're subscribing to get all the latest updates uh, as soon as they are uploaded. We're also on WeChat for our Chinese listeners and VK for our Russian listeners. We also have a link tree there which tells you where Tell Craig Your Story podcast is streaming. We are on all the major streaming services. Google Podcast, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. All right, here we go. This is part one of my chat with Joe Sib on Tell Craig Your Story podcast. Hey, Joe, how are you doing today? What up, Craig? How are you, buddy? I'm doing good. Good good things. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for uh, having me on your show. I'm psyched that we could hook it up. We got all the technology. We got our microphones. We look good. We sound good. Very professional. Yeah. So professional. (laughs) So uh, first thing I wanted to ask is, you know, with the pandemic, it's worldwide. uh, You and your family sort of staying safe. Did you have gigs booked in this period? And tell us, how has it been in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean... Uh, the last six months uh, have just been, you know, crazy as for everyone. Uh, it's been such a strange time. I was literally in San Francisco all the way up until I want to say March 13th. And we went on lockdown March uh, 16th or 17th. So I was doing shows all the way up until it ended. I was on the East Coast uh, the first week of March, uh, March 5th, 6th, 7th. And then I flew back. And I went up to do a run of dates in San Francisco in the Bay Area where I'm originally from. So it was um, it was strange to be there and have everything kind of literally being shut down in front of you. We were yes. one of the last venues, the Punchline in San Francisco, to be doing shows. So when that when that ended, I flew back to Southern California and we went right into lockdown, right into quarantine. And that was just strange in so many different ways. Obviously, we'd been monitoring monitoring everything that had been going on in Europe. Uh, at that point, everyone had their eye on Italy, which seems yes. like such a long time ago. So we were we were seeing what was going on there and you know, witnessing everything that was going on here in the States. We went on lockdown, lockdown with my family. We've been really fortunate and, um, you know, knock on wood, no one's come down with COVID. Um, I have a few friends that, that got it. Um, they, you know, they didn't have anything. Uh, they didn't, you know, obviously they didn't die. They survived. Um, but there's been a lot of, uh, friends that had grandparents, or, um, you know, people that are older that got it, that didn't make it. Um, I got a friend that, uh, is a nurse out in, um, the uh, Lawrence, Kansas area and Kansas city area. And he was, you know, describing what he's doing out there. Um, so, you know, the health workers, they're, they're right there in the middle of the whole thing. Um, and then, you know, for the most part, we're, we're slowly, I think, you know, the numbers, you get your reports each day. Sometimes the numbers are lower and that's good. And you feel like things are going to open back up. Um, you know, if I was to give you like a broad stroke, I don't see us really 
returning to uh, anything normal for for a while, unfortunately. Yes. And when I say normal, I mean you know my normal is uh, you know we're packed in a sweaty club, yes. doing stand up comedy. Everyone's laughing. Everyone's drinking. Everyone's enjoying themselves. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, also, at the same time, there's been different ways that people have been trying to put. Uh, shows together, whether I performed at a drive-in show, uh, yes. I performed uh, at the comedy store in uh, San Diego where they did the show in the alleyway, like the alleyway right. that we usually, you know, smoke and take a leak in. Um, now they did a show in there. Then that got shut down. Um, a lot of people are trying to figure out ways to entertain and do shows. Um, but it's still super strange. You know, you're doing, yes. I did comedy, like I said, in front of a, in driving, you know, people pulled their car in and then people were in their cars and I was on stage and the way that people showed they liked the, the joke was honk their horn. You know, <laughs> it was, I mean, I, you know what? I literally have it on my phone. You have to hear it because it's, it's crazy. Like this is what we're doing now. And, and it was strange because, you know, here you are your whole life, you know, you're doing shows in these great clubs. I've toured with so many great comedians. And now all of a sudden I find myself, you know, doing comedy <laughs> here on, on at a drive-in. Drive Let me see here if I have it right here. It, it was. It's just funny because you're like, did this really happen here? <laughs> okay, listen to this. This is this is a show at a drive-in. Let me see if you can uh -huh. hear this. So here. Oh yeah. Yeah. We gotta move again. <laughs> do you hear that? Yeah. Hey, any Harley riders here? Where are my people? Any motorcycle riders here tonight? Anyone show up on a bike? That's right. You yeah. guys all had to drive by what I have parked out front. Cause wow. I like to go fast. I break rules. Watch. All stock, all black, 2009 Prius. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah, thought I don't know. In 20, even yeah, is uh, that gonna be? Is that is that where we are is it, with comedy? I don't know, man. It's um. <laughs> Yeah, you know, honking horns. That was one show I did. I I Have don't you done know any where. One show? Yeah, I've been doing. You know, when we first when we were quarantined, I did four weeks of shows out of my wife's closet. She had this closet, and uh, it was a really it was like pretty. It was you know obviously she had the closet that had the most room in it, and I went in there, and I started working in there because. You know, I had a house full of, had my daughter, her boyfriend, my son and my wife. And it was just like, you know, like there was just so many people and I couldn't find anywhere to work. So I would go into my wife's closet to like take a phone call. And then I just started, I set up a little desk in there and I just shut the door and they'd be like, they wouldn't know, they wouldn't know where I am. So I'd be in the closet and I started doing this little online zoom thing where um, I was just telling stories and I picked a theme each week. Like one week I told stories about the Ramones. One week I told stories about touring with Metallica. One week I talked about skateboarding, you know, like just doing different things to occupy. Um, at that point, I feel like Zoom was, people were just kind of figuring it out. And then I did a few comedy Zoom shows, which were cool. You know, people, you see, you know, now, you know, right now, even, you know, I didn't have this microphone. I didn't have any of this, but because I'm on zoom so much because I'm doing Skype because I'm doing, you know, the different ways that we're communicating. So I was like, you know what, we got to get it. So now I just feel like this is what we're going to do. This is the way that we're going to communicate to each other until maybe we can you know, be in the same room with each other and, and, and do that. But, um, I've done it all, you know, uh, it, it's, you know, for me, 
some people don't like the zoom stuff. Uh, for me, it's just like being on the phone and you know, I love talking on the phone. So, you know, it doesn't really bother me. And the same with the podcast as well. Like, uh, I know some people like to hear it and listen to it, which is great. But then some people will go, you know what? I, I would rather be there or I'd rather see you and, and get the, you don't get the emotions when, when you're talking on the phone. You know what I mean? The, the facial expressions and the, the, you know, the hand gestures. So, yeah, but it's taken, it's, uh, you know, 2020 and we're only starting to only use online media. So it's, <laughs> it's a little, it's a little crazy, but it uh, is crazy. I mean, this weekend I got asked to, uh, there's two events going on this weekend. I'm going to be doing, uh, there's this band called punk rock karaoke and it's Stanley from the Dickies, uh, Darren from Goldfinger, uh, Randy Bradbury from Pennywise, Greg Hudson from bad religion and wow. uh, the circle jerks. And they do this thing where they say it's punk rock karaoke. We play, you sing, and they have guest singers, sing a song and they're doing it from a studio where there won't be an audience and they go, Hey Joe, will you be our host MC and bring up the singers? And some of the people will be there live and some will be online and you kind of, you know, air traffic controller. So I'm doing that. Then they're doing another event for, um, Steve Soto, who was in 22 Jacks with me, um, also was the, uh, the bass player in the adolescence and he was in manic Hispanic. He passed away about two years ago. So they're doing a tribute concert to him and I'm going to be hosting that. But, but the point is I'm, you know, we're not, I'm not in front of anybody. I'm going to be in front of a camera hosting it online live. So it's one of those kind of things where, you know, either you get over being uncomfortable and do it, or you're not really going to be doing anything. And for me, you know, I, I want to keep working and, and keep yes. creating. So I've kind of uh, tried to adapt the best I can. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Joe, the one, one thing I was sort of, I've always been interested in is it hard to sync the the music together, like to play like a? I mean, if you got four people in different places, is it hard to sync? I mean, I, I mean, honestly, the that's not the part I'm doing. You know, right. I, I, everybody that yeah, everybody that is doing that on the streaming end, I've seen a lot of different ways they that people do that. Um, I know that on the, on the gearhead on, on that end, those people are the ones that figure that out. Like right. for me, anyone that's asked me to sing on anything, basically they say, I, I record my voice singing, uh, like for this punk rock karaoke thing, they said, Hey, will you sing the adolescent song Amoeba? And I'm like, okay. And I literally, they sent me the music. I had to sing my you know, vocal over it with the, you know, here in this room. And then they go, okay, now record yourself to camera. And it was the, it was the worst experience <laughs> in my life. I, I was so upset. I had, a, I didn't realize how vain I am either. I'm like, what this is, what am I doing? I'm sitting in this room with this camera and I'm lip syncing to myself. That feels weird. <laughs> and then I, I was so upset. I was like, ah, and then at a certain point I finally was like, all right, you have to just do this and get it over with. And I recorded it, sent it to them. But then the guy edited it all together and it looked okay. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, but I don't know. I miss singing in front of a crowd, but you know, all of us do, you know, I, yeah. you know, I don't want to be the guy that's stating the obvious. It's yeah. like, yeah, you, but you got to adapt. That's right. Uh, hopefully everybody gets a bit of an appreciation for the live show now, oh. you know, after missing it for so long, you just, 
I will take, I will never complain about a shitty club show ever again in my life. <laughs> That's right. I will never complain. If someone wants me to perform in their bathroom and they're there, <laughs> just like they could be sitting on the toilet and I can, I'll do a, sh I'll do an hour for you just to see you laugh. I don't, you yes. don't have to, you just can sit there. Uh, yeah, I will never complain about flying, uh, to do a show uh, somewhere in the Midwest, I will never complain about just driving to a show and waiting through a sound check. I'm never, I mean, all of the things that we took for granted, I'll never, ever, ever take for granted again. I mean, I miss it so bad. And I, I, what I miss the most is just the hanging out. Like yes. I miss, like as a comic, I just miss, we're all at the club, hanging out together, talking comedy talking, you know, I miss seeing, uh, you know, all the touring I did with Jim Brewer. I miss, you yeah, know, nice. hanging out and bullshitting with him. Unfortunately, you know, we're not doing that. Not that, that's the part that's the hardest. I mean, I missed yeah. the show. I missed being on stage, but I, but what I miss way more than that is just the camaraderie. Just even this conversation you and I are having, I'm, this is great because at least I get to see your face. It'd be great to be doing it in person, but yes. I miss the personal uh, I, I miss being together in a room. I miss that energy. And what I really try to do is just, you know, I, I try not to really think about it because I don't know how long it's going to be until we do that. That's right. And do you prepare? Are you preparing for, you know, for dates or you, you can't at the moment, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, what happened in the beginning? Yeah, in the beginning, everyone rescheduled everything. Okay, you know what we have, you know, okay, you, you, the dates for May, we're going to push them till July. Okay, that got canceled. The dates for July, we're going to push them till September. Oh, that got canceled. Okay, we're not booking anything. It just, right. it stops, you know, um, unfortunately. And I'm just, you know, one person. I mean, the thing that's the hardest for me is the, the, the bands, the musicians, yes. uh, the comedians, but also you know, the people that sell beer at the show, they don't get to work. The people that sell the t-shirts, they don't get to work. The crew, the sound, um, so much. There's the guy that parks the cars. I mean, a lot, of, so many people are not getting to work that you don't even know are there when you go to a live event. And that to me is the hardest thing. And I, and I worry how, how those people are going to get through these times. I mean, there's a lot of great organizations right now that are raising money for, um, a lot of people out of work, but I just can't help but think it's, it, will it be enough? Will they be able to, cause it's like, it's like bridging a gap. You know, you have like, here's the first ramp and here's the other one and you got to jump it. Right. And I feel like, you know, we're, you got to make that gap, but like it's getting wider and wider each yes. day. And I'm just afraid. So Joe, are you doing any writing in this period? Or, a ton. You know? Yes. I, you know, I'm doing writing, but it's also like, I don't, you know, I don't know if when this, when the, you know, when this is all said and done, do you really want to listen to a guy talk about coronavirus for yes, 30 minutes? Right. Yeah. You know, the yeah. other day I saw a comedian doing material about coronavirus oh, and I just dear. turned it off because I was yeah. like, I don't want to hear about it. And when yeah. I was doing now, when I, the, the shows that I've done out there on the road or not out there on the road, but the shows like you know, uh, in Southern California where they were like, okay, you can do this weekend here. And you know, you, you did comedy, you know, what I realized when I was on stage at this present time, this is like a month ago, 
people, people really don't want to talk about that. They don't want to hear about it. They, they, okay. Now, if you've got some crazy insight that you think you got to share with everyone, then, okay. I hope it's funny. Uh, for me, what I realized was I, there wasn't, there wasn't anything that I think, you know, besides some material that people were doing that just, I, I don't know. It's like, for me, I just was like, I think coronavirus we've talked enough about it if people are going to be here for 40 minutes they don't need to hear that you know absolutely so let's let's go back into the joe sib uh sort of story (laughs) so uh, sounds like a movie (laughs) the joe sib story well i I went onto your web your website and the first thing i saw is who is Joe Sib <laughs> or Joe who? <laughs> yeah. 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 I like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, born and raised in uh, California. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Uh, California to the bone. Yeah. Is it Santa Cruz or San Jose? No, San. So basically, so, well, it's funny. I wasn't actually born uh, when it, I don't think it says, I think it says raised uh, in California. So my parents uh, were East coast. Uh, my mother was from Philadelphia. My dad from uh, New York City, Queens, uh, Forest Hills, that area. And they met and they made me on the East Coast. But then after about, I want to say like six months, they moved to the West Coast. Right. And that's where I've been my whole entire life. So I'm originally, I was born on the East Coast, but raised on the West Coast. And West Coast being Santa Cruz, California, till I was 15. And then San Jose, which is about 30 minutes away from Santa Cruz, from 15 till I was probably, uh, I think I moved from San Jose when I was 22, 23 years old. And then I moved to Los Angeles when I was 23 years old. And I have been in Southern California ever since. And tell me about growing up there in uh, San Jose, especially for our Australian listeners. I mean, I'm sure they know San Francisco, uh, but San Jose, it's, it's it's south isn't it it's south, south yeah south south. it's about south it's a i would say it's about an hour south of san francisco and it's mm. it's really two different worlds uh san jose you know the first thing that would come to mind for people listening in australia and all around the world is it's the silicon valley you know yes. steve jobs basically invented and started apple in santa clara i used to go to the restaurant called the good earth where he um would have meetings at before he even had an office my grandmother used to take me there um so growing up i grew up in san jose pre silicon valley and it was a great place to be originally like i said i was in santa cruz santa cruz is a beach town um i for australia it'd be like you know it's like a melbourne it's like a melbourne or it's like a Cairns. you know it's like right there yes. it's it's small you know byron bay style it's not yes. huge it's not sydney it's not sydney but it's you know it's very like surf culture um beach and and it was super cool growing up there i grew up there in the 70s uh and early 80s and then when i moved to san jose I moved with, you know, t- to basically live with my do- my uh, dad. My parents had separated. My dad moved over the hill to um, San Jose. So I went to live with him when I was 15. And at that point, the big change for me and the big, like kind of being in the right place at the right time, depending on who you are, I was in, you know, living in the suburbs of San Jose when punk rock, that second wave hit the suburbs, right. you know? Yes. The first wave was, you know, you got the Sex Pistols, Pistols. the Damned, and all that, right? The Ramones. 
And for me, I was living in the suburbs when all of a sudden, you know, you had the Circle Jerks, Black Flag, the Germs, the Adolescents, and all of these bands all of a sudden were made by kids, you know, living uh, in some of them in suburban neighborhoods, obviously like, you know, Social Distortion and Agent Orange all coming out of Orange County. So when that music came out, it hit the suburbs. And for me, I was just in the right place at the right time living in San Jose because what happened was all of these bands that would go to play in San Francisco, um, all would end up, you know, playing San Francisco and I got to see them cause I was only an hour away. So the first time, you know, the first time that, uh, the adolescents come out of San Francisco or the circle jerks or even, you know, black flag with Henry Rollins, you know, I was able to be there for these shows. And then even crazier when that second wave of English punk rock came over GBH exploited Peter and the test two babies, all of those bands. When they came to San Francisco, I was there for all of those shows. And like I said, I was 45 minutes away. So I was able to see so many bands. I mean, my life at that point, from the time I was 15, a sophomore in high school, all I did until I graduated from high school was every weekend. I was trying to find a ride to San Francisco or trying to find a ride to Berkeley or trying to find a ride to, you know, East Sacramento. Like all I wanted to do was just see shows. And, and at that point I was, you know, heavily involved in skateboarding. I hadn't joined a band yet, but skateboarding to me was also, it was skateboarding and punk rock. They just went hand in hand and growing up in San Jose, I was once again, really, really fortunate that one of the, you know, one of the most world renowned skateboarders in the world happened to live there. And his name was Steve Caballero. So Steve Caballero, you know, one of the, he was the number one rider. He was on the bones brigade with Tony Hawk, Lance Mountain, Mike McGill. You know, it was amazing. Um, Tommy Guerrero lived in the Bay area. So all of a sudden skateboarding and punk rock in the eighties, I was just like, once again, in the right place at the right time. And, And having, a, a professional and having one of the best, you know, pro skateboarders ever, Steve Cavallaro, living in your, you know, yes. in your hometown, everyone came to visit him, you know, because yeah. so like it was, it was, it was great because, you know, all of a sudden you'd, you'd be hanging out and uh, Christian Osoy would be there or, you know, Lance Mountain would be there. And these were just his friends. And since I was friends with Steve and he was friends with all of us, everyone was really fortunate to see just this level of skateboarding. But like at the top, at the time, excuse me, at the time, you didn't think about it. You know, you were just like, oh, yeah, this is my bro. And he just happens to be the best in the world. <laughs> and then, you know, and then at the same time, you're like, oh, you know, the Circle Jerks are playing tonight. Let's go. Oh, hey, check it out. You know, GBH is here. Oh, wow. Is that Lars and James from Metallica? Oh, yeah, they're <laughs> that metal band. Like, at that was- point, they weren't even, like, when I remember the first time that Lars or James was in the crowd at a at a show at the on Broadway. They were just some long haired dudes in leather jackets. Like they <laughs> weren't. It. it wasn't like no way, dude. That's Metallica. It was like, oh, that's cool. Those guys, the guys from across the street came over because across the street was the club called the Stone, which yeah. you know, there's tons of videos of of Metallica playing there. But the thing the thing was is they, at that point those guys were just like they were into the Misfits. They were into Crucifix. Yes. Like that was the common bond and the thing that made Metallica cool for us was they were a Bay area band. And although they were metal, you knew that they had these punk rock roots. Now I would, I would never like, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say like, Oh yeah, Metallica, you know, like, like, you know, they loved, you know, punk rock, but I do know this, they respected it. 
Definitely. You know, I, I feel that they respected I it. I feel that they, you know, I mean, and they knew the bands that were good. It wasn't yeah. like they were listening to the bands that were crap. They were listening to the Misfits. Misfits. Yeah. Glenn Danzig's yeah. an amazing yeah. guy. He has an amazing voice. It's great songs. You know, they were listening to GBH. You know, GBH is sound man, Big Mick. I found this out when I'm on the tour. This is one of the craziest things ever. I'm out on the road with Metallica and it was the first, it was the first, you know, second, first or second show I'm there and I'm sitting on the bus with Big Mick and I recognize him because, you know, he's in so many of the photos and I know, yeah. and I know he's been with the band Still forever. Beard. Yeah. He's got the beard. beard. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'm sitting there, I got a great photo of him I should share with you. So, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, you know, I'm, you know, I should be happy. I'm meeting this guy for the first time. And while I'm sitting there on the bus, uh, I'm sitting there on the bus. We, um, we get to talking and, uh, he's rolling this big fat joint and he's, he's all head <laughs> and he has one of those accents that's so thick that like. He's like, oh, mate, and now the pumpers out there, and all, you know, a lot of punters, and you know, I'll tell you, it's a little bit of hair on the dog, but you're doing good. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what you're saying. Like, I, I can't. There needs to be a subtext underneath you, and it's not there. And he's rolling this joint, and we're talking, and then he goes, Joe, I understand that, um, you know, you grew up in the Bay Area, and that you, you know, you, you're into punk rock. And I go, yeah, I mean, that was. You know, that was my whole thing, punk rock. He goes, have you ever heard of a band GBH? And I go, yeah, like I love GBH. I was there the first time they ever came to America. And then Mick goes, so was I. I'm, I was their sound man. I go, what? Wow. He goes, yeah, they brought me to America. I go, oh, my God. I was at the On Broadway. He goes, I remember that show. And we just start talking. And we, at that moment, we just connected and, uh, and he was amazing to me, just such a great guy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so for me growing up in, in the Bay area and then, you know, you had, you had, you know, the, the, the things that were the most important to me was you had skateboarding and, and you had, you know, obviously you had Steve Cavallaro just being the callous to like just bringing everyone together. And then, which was amazing. And then you had these other, you had these two brothers, Corey O'Brien and Gavin O'Brien, and they were just great at like you know, they were into punk rock and skateboarding. So they were like, you know, they would bring a band like social distortion to play our hometown. And then they, you know, you're like, wow. And then they were organizing shows. And at the same time we were going to San Francisco. And at that point, that's where, you know, you got, like I said, across the street, you got bands like, uh, uh, at that point it was Metallica and like, um, you know, all of the, all of the bands across the street. Like I remember one point, one night, Bad Religion was playing at the On Broadway, and Motley Crue was playing, wow. uh, you know, across the street at the at the Stone. You know, so it was well, like well, it was a well, really unique time in music. Well, sorry, Joe, I just wanted to say, like, uh, uh, that was partly the reason why Metallica moved to San Francisco is because they they just didn't like the LA scene. It was going very glam and very hair metal, and then uh, you know they, they found a, a home, and then they ended up living there in San Francisco, right? Oh yeah. I mean, the thing, I mean, you know, isn't the story that like they, they basically, they cliff, you know, the bass player was up there and yeah. he was like, and this, this is what makes you love cliff so much. He's like, I'll be in the band, but I'm not living in LA. Like that's forget that, yeah. you know, like dude. So here's a, here's a, here's a picture of, you can see Mick right there. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can you see that? Yeah. 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 So that's Mick and Jay. Wow. You know? Yeah. That's cool. And, yeah, I took that one night and Mick was like, or, you know, he was just like, I love that photo, you know? Um, yeah, it, you know, we'll talk about that in a sec, but, um, yeah. So for me, you know, the Bay area and metal 
Mm. You know, we just had, you know, you had Armored Saint. Um, yeah. They were a huge band. You know, obviously Kirk's first band, yes. you know, um, before he joined yeah. Exodus. You know, I mean, so yeah. there was a, there was the metal scene coming out of there, you know, it, and I, I want to say like, you know, the metal scene, even though like I wasn't a part of the metal scene, I just remember that like punkers and metalers, you know, we got along because, yeah. you know, in that time it was all about fast music and, and to move around and, and to go for it. So like when you have the bands I just mentioned, you know, they were fast. It, it wasn't like slowed down. It wasn't, it wasn't mellow. And, and for me later on, you know, and it's so evident because you look at how much metal all of a sudden and around like, what was it? 86, 87 just influenced punk rock so much. I mean, when you listen to bands like, you know, RKL and no effects, I mean, those bands, they sound one way. And then you can hear the metal influence, especially with bands like RKL and stuff like that. It was just like, it was just like, we're going to, we're going to play, we're done playing three chord songs. We're, you know, we're yes. going to, we're going to really become great musicians. And, and, you know, those bands I mentioned, no effects, RKL, you know, and then you had bands like verbal abuse, you know, verbal yeah. abuse was a, a skinhead punk band. <laughs> then all of a sudden, you know, they put out VA rocks your liver. And I mean, at one point when Cliff passed away, the bass player for, uh, seven seconds tried out for Metallica. The oh. bass player for Verbal Abuse tried out for Metallica because, you know, in the scene, it was like, yeah, those, those, they're respected. Get them over here. Let's yeah. let's see how this goes. Um, with so, you sorry, know, Joe, I just wanted to ask. Um, you were talking before that you said that Motley Crue were playing in San Francisco. How did that go on with the with the metal and the punk fans? I, you know, I you know, it's funny, man. It's funny because. That particular night, I just remember I was there to see Bad Religion. So, like, right. I didn't even know what a Motley Crew was at this yeah. point. You yes. know, I was just like, oh, cool. But I do remember this, at least for me, when I was growing up as a punker. Like, you know, I'm talking like in the world of like in my world in San Jose, the bands that punk rockers could get their head around, like, I would say, our common ground with metal kids. Because yes. we, because you got to remember, it wasn't like it is today where it's like, oh, you're into metal and that's it. Oh, you're into punk rock. That's it. It was like all of us were kids that didn't fit into being jocks. We didn't fit into being good students. We didn't fit Always into being, you know, the quote unquote square. You're yeah. going to go to college. You're going to fraternity, get married. We were like, we were outcasts and, and, you know, and if, if you grew your hair long and wore a flannel with the Metallica shirt and smoked, <laughs> you were a metalhead. And then if you were a dude like me with bleach blonde hair and yeah, Mohawk, Mohawk. then you were a punker. <laughs> but the yeah. thing was the two of us realized, Hey man, we're actually the same. We're the same dude. You, you know, you're smoking weed. I'm drinking beers. We both like fast music. We both like heavy music. So what ended up happening was bands like you ready for this. It was bands like first record Motley Crue. The yes. first one, shout at the devil, not yes. too fast for love, but shout at the too fast for love is the first record, but shout at the devil. That record was like, okay, this is cool. This is yes. cool. Uh, Judas priest, hands all down right. all the, all the guys that a lot of the people that I knew in punk rock, we all loved Judas priest, yes. iron maiden. That, yes. that was another band. Cause you had Paul Deano. He had short hair, studded belt. We're like, dude, this guy's a punker. Even yeah. when Bruce Dickinson joined the band, we're like, all right, he's not Paul, but he's still rad. And then the, the glue between 
punk rock and metal that, in my opinion, like the one thing that we could all get our head around, you could argue about like, oh, dude, Motley Crue sucks. Oh, dude, they suck. You know, I'm not a fan of Judas Priest. Oh, man, you like this. You like. But the one thing that a punker and a meddler totally could agree on was Motorhead, hands down. There was never an argument like no one would ever you could like I have never heard anyone in my entire life say, yeah, you know what? Motorhead's lame. Like, I don't (laughs) think anyone's ever said that. Like, there's just that's like saying, you know what? I just think oxygen's overrated. I don't know. Like, do you need that? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like it's like everyone loves Motorhead. That's just hands down the band. And that's the common ground. So when I was growing up, that. That was where we all fit. And um, and I would just say my experience as a teenager growing up in that time, I feel so fortunate because, you know, I got to see every band that I loved multiple times. In some cases, became friends with these bands and and lifelong friends. And then also to be around the skate scene and the community that I was a part of. You know, um, that was incredible too. It'd be the equivalent of like, yeah, you know, I was playing basketball and then my friend Jordan, he was like, yeah, I think (laughs) I'm going to try that too. I mean, okay. So then all of a sudden, you know, you're with the bulls in the highlight of their career. And that's how I look at what I grew up in, in the eighties, because I, I saw every pro skateboarder, you know, as, as far to the beginning of like a, a, a Jay Adams to a Stacy Peralta, and then to go all the way through to, you know, Caballero, Tony Hawk, Christian Hosoy. I mean, those were the players. And I'm I'm super fortunate and grateful that, you know, I didn't take drugs because I can remember it all. <laughs> That's correct. And and also Joe, um, you know, also Santa Cruz is right on the beach. So were you a oh. surfer as well? You know what? I didn't start surfing until after I moved away from Santa Cruz because to be totally honest with you, the surf scene and the surf energy while I was growing up was so just heavy and violent. Right. And if you know, and these were my friends yeah. that I'm describing. These <laughs> right. the, the, I mean, I saw, you know, and there was something about surfing. Like I surf now, like today I surfed. I surf every day now. Yeah, but right. like what I would say is this. When you're out in the water, you're, you know, you're, you're in the water. You, it's like you're naked, you know, literally. Yeah. And, and, and to, and what I would see when I was a kid, the violence and the, and the energy, it just, I was like, you know what? I'm never going to get good at this sport because how do you get good at something when there's so many people around you that are, you know, that are way better than you and you don't want to get in anyone's way because if you do, you're, you know, going to be missing a tooth. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to stick to land right now. And I, that was when I, dove a hundred percent into skateboarding, but now I surf all the time and I love it. That's great. That's great. So we've, we've gone through influences and growing up watching all these amazing bands. So when did you sort of uh, have the idea of forming your own band? I started my first band in 1985. Um, and it was just basically because I, I was the kid that would go to shows 
and I was so into you know slam dancing. I was so into just <laughs> being there at the show. I I went and saw every single band. I never wanted to miss the opening band. I mean, I was the guy that would pay you know at the time eight bucks and see every band that was playing. Yes. And at that point. You know, there'd be like seven bands that night and I would see them all. So I, I really immersed myself into punk rock. And and when it, I think it was just a natural progression when it, you know, it was time. People were like people were like they would be like, hey, you know, we're looking for a singer, or, you know, whatever. And I was just like, all right, you know, like I'm down, you know, and uh, it, the, I think it was just a natural progression that sooner or later I was going to start singing in a band and and wanting to do that um it took a while to get to be the singer at first i started out on bass and then i went from bass to vocals and then i never looked back and then joe were you into the tape uh collecting and you know trading tapes and oh absolutely yeah i mean i mean you know the way you found out about so many bands was doing the tapes i also think you know the thing that was really a big inspiration the way i found out about all my music uh, was there was two radio shows that we listened to every single week. And one of them, I want to say, was on uh, Wednesday night, I think. I think it was Wednesday night. That was Maximum Rock and Roll. Yes. And that was with Tim Yohannan. And that was out of um, the Berkeley area. And then the big show that really I loved was out of the, my hometown, San Jose. And it was a show called Vinyl Rights. And that was on Thursday night. And what you did was they would play all new music all punk rock and you would take a cassette and you would record the show so that later on you could be like, Oh wow. Who are the toy dolls? Well, that's cool. Who are, you know, who's a uh, China white. Okay. That's pretty rad. Oh wow. This bad religion band. They're cool. You know, like yes. I, you know, that was how you basically were spotifying and Googling your bands. Yeah. And that was how, I mean, that was, I, I mean, literally I remember hearing, because you would only hear like one song from this band. They would never, I remember the first time I ever heard the addicts, they played the addicts on there and I was like, Whoa, this band's killer. And then like, you know, there's no way to get a record. It's just one song. And you're like, Oh, the addicts are coming to San Francisco. I'm going to go. And then you go yeah. and you're like, Oh my God. And the other thing was, is that back then when those bands came through, no one was selling merch. So like, it wasn't really? like you got, yeah, no one sold merch. Like to come to think of it, I just realized that literally right now mm. I remember bands like it wasn't like you get done with the show and they go, all right, man, you can buy my record in the back. Like it wasn't like that. What you had to do is then like find someone at a record store that might order it. And then you'd wait a few weeks and all of a sudden you'd get, you know, the first pressing of something from the addicts or, you know, like I remember another thing that was going on was compilation albums. There was this yes. record punk and disorderly. And I remember punk and disorderly had blitz on it and it had Peter and the test two babies. It had the addicts. And I remember GBH was on there and I remember like, okay, all of these bands, this is super cool. Um, another compilation that came out that changed my life was someone's going to get their head kicked in. It was on uh, BYO records and it was done by the guys that were in youth brigade, the Stern brothers. There was uh, three brothers. They started this band called youth brigade. One of my all time favorite bands. And they had this label called uh, better youth organization and they put out this compilation. That was the first time I ever heard the adolescence. First place I ever wow. heard social distortion battalion of saints. And that was how you found out about music. And it was very, it was super like you had, you had to really want to find out about it cause it wasn't easy. Uh, and all of those bands, you know, they'd have one or two songs and then they'd come through and you'd make your way to San Francisco to see them play.
And, and is that how they got their start, like playing gigs, like getting on a compilation or getting that? Also, the magazines were pretty popular in that time too. Yeah, for, I mean, like, getting your name think, out as well. I think like all the bands I mentioned, like Social Distortion, Youth Brigade, all of those bands, they were happening. So yeah. when they got on the compilation, they were happening. But the thing was, is that there wasn't like any mass way for everybody to hear how they, what they were doing. Like, you know, today, you know, if there's a band you love, you're like, Oh cool. We uploaded the song on Spotify. Now everyone in the world can hear it. Imagine yes. if when you uploaded the song on Spotify, that only like a handful of people in, in a, in a, you know, Japan are going to hear it. And then a handful of people are gonna, from Japan. They got to send it over to Australia. And then the people in Australia, they're going to go, Oh dude, there's a couple people in uh, California that might like it. And then it gets to me. And then I got to tell other, like it was, it was all done by word of mouth and yeah. just, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was definitely, um, it was, it was a harder to get the, the vibe. It, it was harder to get the name of your band out there. It was super yeah. hard. So you actually, um, so tell us how you started the band, um, how you found the, the guys from, uh, from wax Oh, sorry. Your first band. Sorry. How, how did that form? I mean, the how first band was like, and- I would say, yeah, I would say the first band for me was just like, you know, I mean, it was just childhood friends, guys I grew up with, you yeah. know, there's always an older guy. There was a guy uh, that I grew up with named Bill Franza. And, you know, I was in, I was from a small town. He was the best guitar player in our town. He was older and, you know, I basically begged and pleaded with him to be in my band. And he finally, like, just so I would leave him alone, was like, all right, I'll join your band. So, you know, like I knew once I got him in the band, we would be, we'd be a, a force to be reckoned with. Um, that band ended up, you know, breaking up as bands do. I was, you know, I was probably 22 when that band broke up. And then I had to make like a real decision. You know, I graduated mm. from college and I had to make a decision like, you know, what am I doing? And, and I, you know, what am I going to do with the rest? You know, like, what am I going to do? Am I going to just, you know, be here in San Jose or, you know, like, am I really going to try and pursue being in a band? And like when I, it sounds crazy to say like being, cause you know, now that like I'm a grown man with like children and like, you know, it's just, yeah, you're like, what? Like if like, you know, it's like if my son said to me, like, I'm going to be in a band and that's what I'm going to, I'd be like, really? Like, okay. You know, like, it's the equivalent of saying like you're going to be a professional baseball player or the equivalent, you know, like, I mean, it's just not the supposed chances. to happen yeah. that you're going to, you know, make your living and put food on the table for your family, let alone, you know, do it for your whole life. Like that, that to me is just, it, I think about it and two things happen to me. I'm like, Oh my God, I get filled with anxiety. Cause I'm like, I hope I don't have to get a real job. Like, oh, that's all I think about every morning when I wake up, God, I hope I don't have to get a real job. Like I've been so <laughs> fortunate, you know, and I'm, I'm a grown ass man. And I, my fear is, is like, I mean, I'm going to be less on this planet and, and still like, I'll be 70 going, I hope I don't have to get a real job, you know? Um, and, and the thing for me was back then I decided, you know, I want to do this. And I was, I was naive and, and, you know, ignorant enough and full of just cheap beer and coffee and clove cigarettes to think I could make it. And that I believed I had something to offer. And that, you know, if, if I sang for somebody's band, I had a lot to offer. Like I believed that. And I think if anything you do, you literally have to believe Absolutely. that, you, you know, you don't, you can't, you can't 
pursue something like singing in a band or doing comedy and not like you might, you might to your friends not say that, but when you look in the mirror, you, you have to say to yourself, I'm fucking badass. I'm the, I'm the guy. I should be the singer. I'm the, I'm, I'm fucking awesome. I got to do this. Now, a lot of times you, you come on stage and you have a thousand people tell you, no, no, you're not a badass and you're terrible. Oh, and we're going to, you know, we're going to throw things at you. Those are usually the moments that I think people walk away from it. Um, I think for me, I knew that if I could go to LA that I had to give it a shot and try to find a band. And I, I was, once again, I met these three guys from Chicago and they were just, they were great players. They were great songwriters. They had a killer look and they had, they are like, everything was in place and all they needed was a singer and they needed a singer though with experience. They, they, at that point, you know, they didn't book shows. They, they, they didn't know, like I, I, you know, I knew how to get a show in LA. I knew who to talk to, to get, you know, um, a show at a club. I knew where to find those opportunities. I knew enough people from being in, other, from being in my first, you know, two bands, how to operate. These guys were like, they didn't know any of that stuff. So they were like, wow, not only do we need a singer, but we need someone that can like operate this situation. And I took full advantage of it. I mean, I knew this band was, I knew the band was great. I knew the players were great. I mean, the thing about it was I was in a band, like I was the front man, but I was in a band with like four, I was in a band with three other people that could have been front man. I mean, Loomis, right. the drummer, he was amazing. The bass player, Dave, amazing. The guitar player. I mean, these, everyone in the band could have held their own as a front man. And then when we all came together, it just meshed. I remember the first practice we had, we learned six songs and I was like, it's on. I mean, it was, it was go time. And, and the other thing was, is these guys wanted it as bad as I did. And we wanted a record deal. We wanted to get signed. We wanted to go on tour. That's all we wanted to do. There was no, there was no backup plan. There was no, there was no idea of what happens if it doesn't work? No way. It will work. We're gonna make this failure's not an option. And we just went for it. That's super inspiring. And you said you met met the guys in LA at that time. Did yeah. you actually then move to LA at the time or did you no, I don't, get them to I come don't, up to San Francisco? No, no, I don't so the way I got so I lived in LA until I want to say ninety. I was twenty two, twenty three years old. <clears throat> I think I just turned twenty two. Let me see, 23 maybe. And uh, I came down to LA. I moved to LA uh, with uh, a car with a broken window. Uh, I brought a skateboard, a leather jacket. Um, I brought some of my records. Yes. And that was it. And I, I went down there. I stayed on a friend's couch. He said, hey, man, you can stay on my couch for one month. And after that, you're on your own. And I was like, all right. And basically... I ended up uh, staying on his couch, you know, and in that one month I got a job and then I found a roommate and I moved in with him. And then as soon as I got like my living situation handled, I'm like, I'm here to, you know, I'm here to play music. And I just started hitting the street, trying to find people that wanted to jam, going to shows, hanging out. And that's how I found the guys in wax. They were looking for a singer and it so, just it all came together. So tell us about the move from the Bay area to to LA. I mean, that's a huge jump. It's like from me going from Newcastle to Sydney. So tell us about how you fit into the LA sort of scene and 
what was your first sort of? Well, I didn't. I didn't fit into the LA scene at all. I stuck out like a sore thumb. <laughs> um, you know, I I I was a kid. I was a skater. You know, I yeah. was a skater kid. I was wearing shorts and Vans, and I was hanging around. I was. I remember the first time I moved to LA. I knew I was totally out of my uh, out of my component, out of my zone, out of my you know Northern California because the first party I went to it was like the guys in Jane's addiction, fishbone, oh, chili peppers. And I was like, holy shit. Like I don't fit in with these people at all. I mean, yes. I'm like, these are people that like I've watched their bands play and now I'm at a party and I live at this guy's house. And I remember I had like, I remember, I remember literally, you know, just going, okay, I gotta, I gotta figure this out because I'm, you know, I, I, not that I wasn't being welcomed. Everyone was super cool to me, but I was just, it was like a, people knew like, you know, I hate to say it. They were like, you're not from here. You're from a small town, <laughs> aren't you? And I was like, yeah, you know, it was, it'd be the equivalent of like, you know, I'm in Sydney and where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Perth. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, like, you know, I grew up, you know, you know, you just know, you know what I'm saying? You're like, you've never been to Sydney. Have you? Nope. Never, man. My, yeah. you know, I can't do an, an Australian accent, but it would be the equivalent of like, you know, that part you fly over when you go to Perth. Like I live down there. Now all of a sudden you're in Sydney, in you know, you're just, yeah, you're, you're just like, wow. Okay. And, um, the first thing I did was I remember the next Monday after that first weekend, I remember, um, I was like, man, I got to do something about my hair. And I remember, uh, at that point I, I, you know, I just, I always wore a baseball cap or I just, I didn't, you know, my hair. And I remember I saw a guy that I was working with and he like came in and he had his hair slicked back. And I was like, well, that's cool, man. Like kind of social distortion vibe, you know? And this is before people were slicking back their hair. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm going to, I'm going to cut my hair like that. And I went to a barber. And I went in there and, and, you know, I went in and then I walked out with this haircut I've had now for 30 something years. And it's just like, <laughs> just, I said, what should I do with my hair? I go, I want to get my hair. I had a little picture. I go, can you cut my hair like that? And the guy's all sure. And he get, you know, high and tight and slicked it back. And I was like, wow. And I never, I never looked back. I've had the same haircut since that day. Yeah. Right. So you started playing in LA. Tell us about your first sort of uh, first couple of gigs there in LA and then your, your record. Yeah. Deal. Yeah. I mean, um, it was, it's, it's funny to talk about now because getting signed, it was such a big deal. Yes. I mean, there was, there was real money involved. There was, you know, the, it wasn't like $50,000. It, it was, you know, there was bands getting signed for a hundred thousand, 200,000. You know, you'd heard about bands getting signed for, you know, $400,000, you know, yeah. 500, you know, there was real money to be, out there, you know, and not that that's why we were doing it, but you were like, okay, you know, there's a shot yes, that yeah. like, I mean, I mean, honestly, I remember, I remember, you know, the, the first label that signed our band and we had a unique story in the sense that like, and I believe this is the way it works is that we had a natural momentum that just connected right away. When I was in wax, it was like, we started the band, you know, and we were signed to our first record deal within six months. Wow. And and the reason that happened was because there was just a natural momentum to it. We were writing, we were performing, no one had to learn how to play. Everyone was good on stage. And it was just like, it was just like, okay, here we go. Now at that time, I remember when we got signed to Caroline records, 
you know, I think we got signed for like at that point, like $50,000. So each guy got $10,000. And I remember thinking, I remember when I got the $10,000, I, I thought I'm done. Like I'm never going to have to work again. Like I yeah. really thought that 10,000, that was the most money I'd ever seen in my life. You know, I was, yeah. I was a 23 year old kid with 10 grand and I was just like, Oh my gosh. Um, that first deal with, with Caroline, you know, you got to remember we were, we were a poppy punk rock band that was influenced by the replacements soul asylum and the goo dolls and what was happening in music at that time was you know uh was pearl jam Soundgarden, mm -hmm. you know rancid rancid hadn't happened yet um you know offspring uh green day none of those bands had happened yet so we were you know we were doing our thing and what ended up happening is we got dropped and we, you know, we had gotten dropped. So then all of a sudden when we're out of the mix and we're going through this, 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 and when I say drop, that meant like we made a record and we turned it in. And at that point, the record label was like, you know what? We're not feeling it. We're going to let you guys go in your way. They kept the record, which was a nightmare. And, you know, we were basically going back and forth. And I was going back and forth with him for about a year, just saying, can you give me the record? Like, I'll put it out. And finally, I went to the president of the label and I said, look, you know, can you do the right thing here? You know, I'm 24 years old and, and you got my whole life wrapped up in this record I made yeah. for you. And it's like, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, do the right thing and give me the record. And at that point, you know, we had made a record for like, you know, our first record came out on Caroline. It did okay. We had gotten bumped up to Virgin Records, so this wow. second record for Virgin was supposed to be the big one. But you know, like I said, the number one band at that point on Virgin was like Smashing Pumpkins, you know, right. the wall, you know, like the Wallflowers, and it was just like we weren't doing that. Mm -hmm. So they, of course, you know, cut their losses. But I ended up getting the record from Virgin. Oh well, wow. yeah, I got it from I got it from Virgin. They gave it to me. I remember the president was like, I could, you know, I, I can't believe I'm doing this. He gives me the record for free. And basically I just took the record and ran with it. And that's how I started side one dummy records. I started yes. side one dummy because I needed to put a record out and I was like, yeah, I'll just put it out on my own label. And I put the record out and what ended up happening was just once again, the record took a lot. You know, we had fans. It took on a life of its own. And then the big game changer was there was a radio station at that point in LA, the biggest radio station in you know, America at that point, it was called K rock. K -Rock. And they started playing one of the songs off the record and wow. it just, it just caught like fire. And before we knew it, um, we had a, we had a new record deal put on the table from Interscope. And that was when Interscope was on fire. It was like Jimmy Iving, Tom Wally, all, all these huge music uh, figures. And the bands that were happening at that point on uh, Interscope, it was Hole, uh, Wallflowers, and Bush. And it was just like they were the place to be. And we literally went from like almost crashing and burning to literally hopping on a flight, on a plane, and going out to begin a tour with uh, the band Bush. And wow. just all of a sudden, it just, you know, we went from, we went from like, it was supposed to, it was crashing and burning when we got dropped and then to get re-signed. Um, and at that point it was insane because I had, I had run my credit cards. I, I mean, I, I was in over my head. Like people talk about student loans. Oh my God. 
I had I had no student loans. I had just punk rock loans. Like yes. I was just I was running credit cards. I was booking this. I was doing everything. And then we got re-signed, and I I'll never forget it. Um, we got re-signed for four hundred thousand dollars, and each guy got a hundred thousand dollars. And I remember I didn't even have a bank account to, to put the money. I, I the guy. Yeah, the the company was like. I remember Interscope was like. So where you know what where do you where do you want this money to go? And I was like, I don't know. And like I had to figure out a way to like get this money. And it was just <laughs> account, it, was, yeah. it was so surreal. Cause at the time my wife, you know, she was my girlfriend, but at the time we just we were just sitting there laughing, like, you know, we're living in a, this little apartment in Venice, but we have this hundred thousand dollar check and we're just like how do we do like how did this happen and then yes. you know it was a it was a wild ride you know it's my life you know like when it's funny you know craig as we're talking about this like i said man like while i'm while i'm saying this to you i'm like i'm like did that really happen you know like <laughs> gosh like it almost seems like dude this guy's lying you know yes. but i mean it's all true and, and just talking about the, the the bush tour i mean totally oh, that different was start totally different styles of music. How, how did it, how did do you like, how did the crowds react to the, you know, oh, the Bush? They were crowd? into it, man. They yeah? were into it because, yeah, because at that point, you know, Bush had just come out and, you know, this is all, you know, pre, this is, this is the nineties. So it's like, you know, they come out and, you know, Gavin was super cool. Yeah. Um, he was just, you know, we hit it off with, I mean, like, let's put it this way. We weren't palling around with them like, oh, hey, let's go do this. But like, you know, Wax, we definitely we definitely had a vibe that we wherever we went, we took over the situation like that was just the way we rolled. And, you know, we we would roll into any touring situation. And, you know, I think we were fun, fun guys and we wanted to have fun and we didn't take it too seriously. I mean, sometimes we did. But for the most part, you know, we we always we're always, you know, we were the ones to have the drinks. We were the ones that, you know, were out having fun. And I think a lot of bands, especially like Bush, they were like, man, those guys have fun. And and then on top of it, we delivered the goods live. I mean, we would yes. go for it. So no one, you know, no one could question, you know, what we were doing live. They were like, even if you didn't like us, you were like, man, those guys go for it. And, you know, we were going for it, you know, off a of stage as hard, you know, and, and we had fun. And, um, and I remember, you know, even with, the, uh, Gavin and them, they'd always invite me out to do a Sex Pistols song, you know? Oh, and, cool. Uh, yeah, that was super cool. They were very they were very accommodating and, you know, they were cool. I think one of the things that we kind of kind of took, you know, like put underneath our belt at that point was, you know, we had, we had been out on the road before that with the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and uh-huh. they really t- taught us how to tour, yeah. um, how to treat people, uh, how to, you know, how to put on a show. And I, and I think when we were on tour with the mighty, mighty Boston's, we all took note to that. And, and, and then on top of it, the, the, the guys in the mighty, mighty Boston's, like all of them took a liking to wax and they went out of their way to really like, I think, teach us a lot about how you handle yourself on the road and how you act and how you treat others and how you treat your fans. And we took that all to heart. So like, like when we went out with other bands, we had that that attitude and that vibe that the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones had taught us. And we wanted to we wanted that to be 
the bar that we would set when we met people. Like, you know, I remember the first time, you know, going on tour with the Mighty Mighty Boston's, we showed up at the venue and they were on stage and we walked in and, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we, you know, we had known that they knew who we were and they invited us, but we didn't know, know them. And I'll never forget, they all stopped playing and they all got off the stage and they walked over and they introduced themselves to us. And so I'll never, cool. yeah, I was like, wow. Like after that, I'd never, I, I mean, to, you know, after that, I never saw that happen ever again with any band I ever toured with. Not to say that the bands I toured with weren't nice to us and weren't great, but I never saw a band stop their sound check and go, Hey, come downstairs. Welcome to the tour. I'm Dickie Barrett. How are you? Hey, I'm Joe. You know, like, wow. And they, they, that was something they taught us and it was super, um, it was, respect, it was, definitely, you know? Oh yeah. But it was, it was a respect, but it was also showing you the way you, yeah. you handle business. Yeah, absolutely.